If you're looking for a podcast to give you suggestions on how to preserve and maintain severed limbs to build your own Frankenstein monster later. Ew, ew. What? It's just ew. Well, this isn't that podcast. No, it's not. This is, however, comedy. Tragedy. Marriage. Welcome to Comedy Tragedy Marriage, a podcast where a married couple takes turns each episode selecting a movie, TV show, or documentary to watch. We watch it together and then sit down and discuss why we liked it, loved it, or loathed it. And then we share that conversation with you. I am Stan the Movie Man. I review films at StanTheMovieMan.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MovieManStan. Uh, also follow the podcast at CT Marriage. If you want to get in touch with us via email, do so at ComedyTragedyMarriage at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a voice message simply by clicking the link in the description of this episode. Joining me as always. You got the fish sweats going, don't you? No, I don't. Not oh, at all. Well, you just, you, you had a cramp on also. It's because I forgot what I was going to say. Well, well, that's the fish sweats from dinner. Over there's uh, my other half. Yeah, Maud, the 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 fish sweaty broad, <laughs> which has absolutely nothing to do with with the this movie. week's movie. No, yes, no. Uh, um, I uh, it was my choice this <laughs> week, and to carry on with our uh, spooky season theme, Ooh. we watched The Exorcist three. It stars George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, Jason Miller, Scott Wilson, Nicole Williamson, and Brad Dorif, amongst others. It is based on the novel Legion by William Peter Blatty, who also adapted his book into a screenplay and directed this movie. Only his second movie that he directed uh, and his last movie that he directed and it was also the first movie he directed in 10 years. <clears throat> it is the story of, um, um, well, it picks up with some of the characters from The Exorcist. Um, the, uh, George C. Scott plays a detective by the name of um, uh, uh, William F. Kinderman, who in The Exorcist was played by Lee J. Cobb. Oh, okay. Um, he was a friend of um, Father Damien Karras, uh, who dies at, uh, spoiler alert, who dies at the end of The Exorcist. Um, and he is going to meet with uh, Father Dyer, played by Ed Flanders, who um, was also a friend of uh, Damien Karras's. Um, they each think the other is going to uh, help uh, lighten the mood of the other uh, in or, uh, on the anniversary of the passing, which uh, in the film occurred 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but a series of murders keep in- interrupting uh, Kinderman as he is uh, trying to uh, deal with this anniversary. 
and they are murders reminiscent of a fellow by the name that is referred to as the Gemini Killer. Um, the Gemini Killer was a serial killer who uh, would remove a finger from one hand and carve uh, the symbol, uh, the Gemini symbol, in his uh, in his victims, and that killer was executed several uh, many years ago. Mm -hmm. But somebody apparently is copycatting his style and his M.O. Um, and there's uh, there were other things that were also his signature, like the letter K in the person's name. Um, and also he would write letters to taunt the police and, and newspapers. And whenever a word ended in L, he would double the L, mm -hmm. such as in the word wonderful. You would spell it F-U-L-L. -L. Um, so uh, Father Dwyer, Dyer rather, ends up going into the hospital for some unknown reason. And while he is there, he is murdered by someone copying the style of the Gemini killer. Um, and this is, as I said, a, one of a series of murders that share the same signature. Now, in the hospital's uh, mental wing, uh, in the high security unit, is a, uh, a guy that had absolute amnesia, was just found wandering the, uh, the waterfront um, and had no idea what his name was or who he was. And that person looks exactly like Damian Karras, mm -hmm. and he is played by Jason Miller. He is referred to as Patient X in the film, but he looks exactly like Damian Karras. And the reason is very complicated. Um, but the killings continue, uh, and uh, Kinnerman goes and talks to this Patient X and Said, you know, questions him about how he was able to escape because the, the uh, patient X talks about all these murders that he's done mm -hmm. and that, that he is the Gemini killer. Uh, and he, you know, there's, there's no way because it's a very difficult wing to get out of. Um, but there's, um, Obviously, the killings are continuing, so somebody has to be responsible. And it's up to uh, Detective Kinderman to uh, figure this out and to avenge his, uh, his friend's death and to try to put all of this to an end. Okay. Uh, the film was released in 1990, and it um, um, has one of the great jump scares in all of horror movies. Yeah, it jumped me. Well, I'm not even talking about the one we both reacted to because oh. <laughs> uh, the there there is a scare immediately before that one that sets you up for this one, where a nurse goes into the um, to a patient's room because she's hearing weird noises, and the patient pops up out out from behind the the rails of his bed and 
is yelling at the nurse because people are always waking him up and and you know all this stuff um so and that that act i wasn't aware of that one okay so that actually got me uh it's the one after that where the person in the sheet follows that nurse um and um it's it comes at the end of a uh two very long uh shots down a hallway in a hospital and there's uh, essentially nothing going on except these weird noises that the nurse hears. So she checks those out, and that's when we get that jump scare. Yeah. And then she hears more noises. And um, then she checks in a room, and there's, there's nothing in the room. And so she walks back like she's going to get back behind the desk, and that's when the person in the sheet just pops up behind her uh, and got those big, heavy, yeah. chrome, sheer-looking things. And uh, that is one of the top jump scares, according to people who rank such things, of all time in a horror movie. Yeah. It didn't seem to do anything to you. Well, the first one got me. <laughs> So, so I like I was still <laughs> I was still trying to recover I think or not even paying attention. Yeah, um, I had seen bits and pieces of this movie over the years and uh, wanted to watch the whole thing and just had never gotten around to it. So this seemed like the perfect time to do that. Um, and it's there are some odd choices made throughout this movie. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, all kinds of cameos. Yeah. Uh, of, of various people who were very well known then, um, including some athletes. Patrick Ewing is one. Yes. He's, uh, he's listed in the credits as an angel of death. Okay. Uh, and Fabio. Yeah. Also is, is there. We see Larry King and see Everett Coop. Yeah. Um, this this um, takes place in Georgetown, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. so it was a place of movers and shakers, um, and those were, you know, some of the movers and shakers of 1990. Yes. Uh, I thought I saw another basketball player, but um, he's not listed in, in the credits anywhere. So. Okay. It was somebody that just looked like him, I guess. But there is a very tall uh, orderly that um, is looking straight down the camera. And there's a lot of these little weird background player things Mm -hmm. going on in the movie that I noticed. Um, There's um, people moving strangely there's a nun who's doing some sort of little dance or something um at one point in the hospital hallway and i don't think it's in the psychiatric ward mm. but but you know she, doing some strange little dance um and and there are you know people in the background who are just staring um who i guess are supposed to be demon possessed um 
but there's there's just there's there, there's a lot of weird choices in this movie. Yeah. Uh, George C. Scott was at a point in his career where I think he had zero Fs to give. I, um, I, okay, I'm glad it's not just me. No. I was thinking George C. Scott needs a pair of shoes or, you know, he's got a, uh, you know, he got rent to pay or, you know, I, um, the scenery chewing, he was chewing the scenery so hard he was spitting splinters he, and not in a good way. He, uh, he has some very explosive dialogue delivery at times. Yeah. And sometimes they just sort of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, dude, uh, is it your tumor acting up or is your prostate giving you trouble? What's, what's, you seem a little... A little pent up. A little, yes. A little angry. Uh, but that was, that was especially in his later years, that happened a lot. Uh, of course, he, he... Maybe his tumor was acting up he, or his prostate was giving him trouble. We don't know. He was very, you know, he was fiery in a lot of his roles. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes. He was an actor of intensity. Yes. Always. Uh, there, is, there is one particular scene near the end where he's running through the list of things he believes in. And they're all negative things. And... Sp- that flies from his mm-hmm. face like a, a geyser. Um, and, and I don't know if that was a choice or if that was just something that happened when they shot it. That was the take they took. That was the take they used. And it, uh, it was um, it memorable. Was, it was a look. It was a, it, it it was was a, look. a look. It was a style. Uh, and it was quite something uh <laughs> it was it was the whole thing was something yes the whole movie is something it it is so stylized um like when we see Kenman in his home with his wife and his daughter and his mother-in-law mm-hmm. the wife acts like she's been drugged her delivery is so Low, yes. So flat affect almost. Yes, is it's like you know she's just barely conscious. Well, and the mother-in-law looked like somebody much younger in horrible, horrible makeup and wig. That, and she also it was that stereotypical mother-in-law that um, was very opinionated and. Uh, while she never says it, I, I think she thinks uh, Kinnerman, her son-in-law, is a moron. Um, Maybe. And and there's there's a story Kinnerman tells about his mother-in-law about how she's going to cook fish for dinner. <laughs> and he's the, t- he's talking to Father Dyer here. Yes. Um, when he's talking about the fish. Yes, it, it is. It is a carp, which we—I've never known anybody to eat carp. Uh, I heard a, a recipe for carp one time that was you—you uh, you, you dress the carp, uh, you clean it and all that, uh, and then you stuff it full of um, 
you know, various vegetables and, mm -hmm. and, and things to season it. And then you wrap it in horse manure. And then you cook it uh, for however long and however hot. And then you take it out and then you throw away the carp and you eat the horse manure. Ew. Uh, it's a joke, obviously. Clearly. Uh, but... I think actually that catfish is a variety of carp. Um, and if it's not prepared properly, it has a very funky, muddy taste to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, anyway, um, yeah. Well, but he tells a story about he, the, the He fish. called it a carp. Um, and this story goes on and on and on. The payoff is okay. But not for the amount of buildup we get. Yes. Um, there are so many choices in the script and in the acting um, and in the way the, the thing is shot that it's no surprise that William Peter Blatty only got to direct two movies. Well, I was going to say a lot of these choices seem... Um, as the writer of the book who also wrote the screen adaptation mm -hmm. and then it ended up directing, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the choices seem at mildest self-serving and at strongest masturbatory. Okay. William Friedkin was originally supposed to direct this movie. Who directed, who directed, the, directed the, the original, original Exorcist. Exorcist. Um, and when he dropped out, um, Blatty was offered the opportunity to direct this film. Um, there were problems in, in creating the movie. No! Because, well, wait. Because... Uh, the studio demanded an exorcism scene, which is that whole last gory act. Yeah. Um, you know. Um, and well, it's an exorcist film, so yeah, one would think an exorcism would happen. But apparently, in the book, there isn't one, or at least not, you know, the way we think of it from in, the, in the original film. But we kind of get one. It's yeah. very brief, doesn't end well, um, and and Nicole Williamson it plays the priest um, who does the uh, exorcism, and uh, the white haired priest. The white, white haired white. priest, and he's Father Morning. Uh, they say his uh, he performed an exorcism, like in. Um, Africa or someplace, mm. and in the process of that exorcism, his hair turned white. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, and it's like he's in a different movie. Yeah. Um, his, his scenes are shot separately from everybody else. Yeah. Um, like Michael Jackson and We Are the World. Separate. Okay. Filmed separately. That didn't come to me, but fine. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, and, and, and he, it's like he is psychically drawn to this hospital 
to this room uh, in in the violent ward mm -hmm. and um, is uh, it, because he he there is no communication yeah. between him and Kenderman or no him interaction and him and, and anybody at the hospital he just walks in the doors open for him because normally there's a key or yeah. some sort of something and he walks right in uh, now whether that's the evil spirits that are uh, calling to drawing him, to, him in to bring him in the evil siren song yes um, I, I don't know and that's one of the many things about this movie that I don't know it's a trippy flick it is it, it has a it's very stylish um, in a way that says art house a little bit um, but it's also a standard uh, studio film on top of it and it's uh, an exorcism movie um, and a serial killer movie uh, it's it's there's there's so many it's trying different it's things. trying to be a lot of stuff yes there's so many different threads that really never tie together it's almost by accident that we get the conclusion we do it seems like um, now having said all that there are some very entertaining things about this movie. Uh, the relationship between Father Dyer and Kinnerman is playfully antagonistic. Mm -hmm. um, as part of their ritual on the anniversary of uh, Father, Father Karras' death, they go see It's a Wonderful Life in a movie theater that apparently only shows very old movies. Each apparently, you know, sort of thinking that they're going to cheer the other one up right. when it's really just it's a it's a good excuse for them to spend you know man time together yes um and remember their departed yeah, friend their friend um and you know there's there are so many weird little things uh that some of them actually work um i recognized an actress whose um, given name escapes me, but she played one of the Baldwin sisters on the Waltons, mm -hmm. and she was she was Miss Mamie Baldwin, and um, she she looks like herself, just you know a little older because this was 1990, um, but she's she's creepy. Well, she she's plays... in the she's in the like the dementia wing, right? Um, she's clearly you know, not herself. Right. Um, is she the one that goes crawling on the ceiling? Yes. Yes. That was pretty cool. But. That was like that was, speedy crawling on the ceiling. That was obviously somebody in. in uh, made to, uh, made, up, made up, up to look like her. Right. Um, With the bun and the blue robe. Is that Mrs. Celia? Yeah, Mrs. Clelia, yes. Cle okay, Clelia. And it's Mary yes. Jackson is her name. Okay. Um. And there are several people. Okay, here's the conceit of this movie. Um, the killer is able to to put himself in other people's bodies and 
carry out his murders. For instance, an elderly woman going into uh, confession mm-hmm. murders the priest in the confessional booth. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have no memory of having done it. And then there's this lady, um, Miss Clelia, who murders Father Dyer, but she has no memory of it, and she is otherwise very low on the scale of communicativeness. Um, she she's constantly looking for somebody to fix her radio um, because there's dead people talking out of it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there's another woman that we see a couple of times in, in that ward who uh, goes to Kinderman's house mm-hmm. uh, with the intent of killing his daughter mm-hmm. because uh, the Gemini killer is uh, trying to punish him for testing him or not believing him or not putting in the newspaper that the Gemini killer is responsible for this string of murders because mm-hmm. he wants that in the newspaper. Um, and, and the part of Patient X is played in a duel by, by two characters. Mm-hmm. Two actors. Two actors. Uh, one is um, Jason Miller. Who was Father Karras. Right. In the original Exorcist film. And the other is Brad Dorff. Okay, here's the thing, and I'm just going to go on ahead and splay it all out there, but Brad Dorff is the one redeeming thing about this entire film for me. He is compelling to watch. He steals every scene he's in, and when you're in scenes with George C. Scott, that would take some doing. Yes, it does. Um, He's just a brilliant, creepy, twisty actor, and it seems like his whole career has been built upon playing weird weird roles like this mm-hmm. um but he's his scenes are absolutely magnetic to watch you cannot take your eyes off him and some of the time his voice is is modulated in a way to make him sound otherworldly mm-hmm. um and there's uh, and i don't know how people are how actors are able to cry on command but like there's just one tear rolling down his cheek as he's going on these diatribes um, about all the evil he's done and all the evil he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is an impressive performance. Oh, yeah. Uh, on so many levels. Um, in a movie that didn't deserve that quality of performance. No. Uh, Because while it's perfectly watchable, The Exorcist 3 is 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 the director William Peter Blatty is, is so intent on throwing these little weird touches in these little strange bits of business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a dream sequence, which is where um, Fabio and um, Patrick Ewing show up. Uh, the And I didn't know it, but the Lennon sisters were in there as well. Really? I guess they were singing with the band. Huh, okay. Um, Interesting. 
and and there's it's there's just all kinds of really bizarre things that going don't on. really do anything to advance the story or to they don't really um i don't think most of these things enhance the film well unless you're just looking for weird to be weird and that is the struggle when it comes to um taking a book where the audience the the reader creates the images uh based on the word uh, theater of the and, mind and and probably does a far better job than any translation to the screen especially for these fantasy um, dream sequences mm -hmm. because no movie has ever at least in my experience created a dream that looked like my dreams mm -hmm. um, my dreams always at least in my memory are always very hazy and and it's <clears throat> the images are fleeting um, they morph and um, you know I, I can't l look at a uh, like a newspaper to read the headline because the letters are always moving around. They're swirly yeah uh, and and even if I do make out a word the next second that word has been rearranged mm -hmm. so um, interesting so even even a well-done dream sequence is not doesn't look like a dream to you to, well i bet to anybody yeah um because the, there's such an unreality in my dreams most of the time that and i rarely remember one but yeah um you know that that putting trans uh, translating from the page to the screen it just never works and then the whole thing with fabio and and the other cameos and um, the the big band and um, mm -hmm. made up of angels or uh, i don't know if they were actually angels there or not but um it, it all just was just so just, much weirdness it's just a bunch of business and maybe it made sense in the book, but it doesn't really make sense on the screen. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break and then come back and give our ratings for uh, The Exorcist 3, as well as talk about what we have been watching and reading right after this. Welcome back to Comedy Tragedy Marriage. We watched The Exorcist 3. Um, a film that had a budget of $11 million and it grossed $44 million. That's terrifying. Well. People were probably expecting something other than what they got. Well, but I think, especially since the cost of tickets at the time, um, I think this did found an audience, uh, whether we agree with them or not how how did rotten tomatoes 
I'm getting there. Okay. Uh, okay. But forty-four million dollars in nineteen ninety money is is a, a decent chunk of change well, when your budget was only eleven. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a good return. Uh, the critical response: uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a fifty-nine. Okay. That is based on forty-one reviews. Uh, the consensus is The Exorcist Three is a talky literal literary sequel with some scary moments that rival anything from the original. Uh, two, I think, would be a one. rival. To, well, one. For okay. me. Okay. I mean, because I don't even remember the other one. Um, yeah. And it doesn't have a... Um, doesn't have a Metacritic score. Okay. And audiences uh, polled on opening weekend gave it a C. So, you know, it uh, it it was a middling at best movie, both with the critics and with audiences. But people went to see it. Yeah. It made nine million, nine point three million its opening weekend, grossed a total of twenty six and change, uh, in the U.S. and Canada in its theatrical run, and eighteen million internationally for a total of forty four. Um, but Blatty attributed its poor box office performance to the title imposed by Morgan Creek, having always intended for the film to retain the title of the novel, which was Legion. Legion. Uh, during development and production, the film went under various titles, including Exorcist 1990. Um, Morgan Creek and Fox insisted on including the word Exorcist in the title, which producer Clark DeHaven and Blatty protested against. Uh, now, the film won a 1991 Saturn Award, which is one of the science fiction and fantasy mm -hmm. and horror awards, for Best Writing. And Best Supporting Actor was, uh, uh, Brad Dorff was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, and Best Horror Film. George C. Scott was also nominated for a Golden Raspberry mm. uh, for Worst Actor, but lost to Andrew Dice Clay in The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Well, you know, um, there you go. We watched Esteemed this... Esteemed company. We watched this on Shudder. Uh, it may be available other places as well. So, we come to that point. Tell me, Maud, what do you give... What rating do you give to The Exorcist 3? Um, there's a song in a chorus line called Dance 10 Looks 3. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that song. It's pretty good. Brad Dourif 10. Um, the rest of the movie, 2. Mm -hmm. um, I'm giving it 3. Only because there's a, I think there are the bones of the story of a good movie there. It just needed a different director. Um, so I think there could have been. I think there was potential. Yes, it, it, it had the potential to be a very good movie, but it just. It never it, got there. I think perhaps the ego. Uh, egos of the people making it and uh, the interference from the studio may have um, screwed that up. Now, there is a, a original director's cut 
that include that is closer to what Vladdy originally intended, even though the film was thought to be lost or hadn't been saved mm -hmm. from from these other scenes, uh, they have been uh, collected from quote other sources. So there is a director's cut that is closer to what Blatty intended. Now, whether that's any better or not, I couldn't tell you. But that there is The Exorcist 3. Yeah, kind yeah. of. What have you been watching and or reading? Um, I've gone back to The Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. I have finished season one. I am several episodes into season two. Um, and looking back at it now, in light of the events of January 6th, 2021. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. <laughs> I mean, because that was talked about in the film, uh -huh. in, the, in the book, and in, in some of the episodes of Handmaid's Tale. The, the insurrection that led to Gilead? Um, there, was, there was an insurrection, there was a, a, a capital incident um, a White House incident, and I think maybe the Supreme Court also mm. um, that that led to Gilead. Mm. Um, okay. There was the you know declaration of martial law, and you know um, a lot of that stuff is is terrifying looking mm. back. Mm. Um, it's brilliant television. It's disturbing and dystopian and um, in a, a Margaret Atwood documentary that I watched and, and spoke about here um, on the podcast, um, everything that she wrote about in the, in the novel, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, she didn't make up any of the stuff. All of these events had happened somewhere in the world. Um, so it's just, it's chilling and wonderful. Um, so that's been where a bunch of my TV time has been spent. Um, I have started another Matt Haig novel. Um, I had read um, The Midnight Library recently and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was wonderful. It was one of those quantum, trippy, alternate lifelines kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, this one is actually from 2017, so it came out several years prior to... Um, the Midnight Library. It's called How to Stop Time. And the basic premise is there is, um, there are a, a wee few handful of people in the world who age many, many exponentially times slower than the rest of the population. So, you know, a, a thousand year lifespan is not uncommon for mm -hmm. these folk. Mm -hmm. And um, this book seems to be following one particular um, person who has this disorder, I guess. Um, and um, it's, it's bouncing around through some of, of their lifetimes. And um, I'm not very far in, but I'm digging it already. And I'm thinking that Matt, Matt Haig is going to be an author whose, whose books I will just enjoy. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I'm digging it so far. 
You've also been on a bit of a Mahalia Jackson run. Oh my gosh, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Um, I actually took notes in here somewhere. I watched three Mahalia Jackson things um, recently. Uh, there it is. Okay. So on Hulu, for free, I streamed um, Remember Me, the Mahalia Jackson story. It was a, um, not a documentary. It was a like a drama bio pick musical um and it was made with the cooperation of Mahalia Jackson's estate um on Amazon Prime I rented for four dollars totally worth it Robin Robert Robin Roberts presents Mahalia um it was not made with the cooperation of Mahalia Jackson's estate but um, it covered a lot of material um, that actually had been addressed in my third viewing choice, um, which I found on Freevee um, for free. Mahalia Jackson, The Power and the Glory. It was a documentary. It was made in um, 1997, actually. So mm -hmm. it was um, 25 years ago, and at that point, 25 years since her death. Um, and a lot of the stuff that was in the documentary on Freebie was also referenced in the Robert, Robin Roberts Presents Mahalia that was on um, Amazon Prime. Um, now, the leads in these two biopics both did their own vocals. And um, the one on Hulu, the Mahalia, Remember Me, the Mahalia Jackson story, um, starred a singer named Ledisi. Ledisi, L-E-D-I-S-I. Um, anyway, she was good. Um, the Robin Roberts Presents Mahalia on Amazon Prime starred um, Danielle Brooks, whose vocals and acting, I felt, both were superior. Um, that voice could boil water. It was, it was stunning to watch. And it actually felt more, um, it covered a lot more different facets of Mahalia Jackson's life. Um, so all three things um, worth watching. And that was kind of a deep dive. And thank you for reminding me because mm -hmm. I had forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I enjoyed the documentary um, even though it was 25 years old. And um, the Amazon Prime Robin Roberts presents Mahalia mm -hmm. with um, Danielle Brooks. Really, really good. Okay. Anything else? I don't think so. Okay. You and I watched Conversations with the Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes yeah. on Netflix. It's three episodes that uh, covers his early life, his active killing, and then his capture um, and, uh, and, and his trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had watched uh, a, a movie, uh, a fictional movie, based on the graphic novel written by one of Jeffrey Dahmer's high school classmates, Durf Bergdorf, mm -hmm. um, who, um, and that graphic novel was the basis of this movie that we watched. Uh, mm -hmm. Some 
from a couple of seasons ago. Now. A, it was a like a biopic, and it yeah. actually it covered his early life in high school up to when he kills his first person. That was the one that that almost made him almost sympathetic, right? Well, yes, and uh, it, while it's practically impossible, um, if you can look past what he did, which, again, practically impossible. Yeah. But this was, a, uh, as a young man, a kid, uh, who grew up in a troubled household mm -hmm. with at least one parent with perhaps some mental Mental illness, disorder, yeah. Um, who was ignored, mm -hmm. who was abandoned. He was a person. I and mean, we don't like to think of him as a person. No, we don't. Because he did such monstrous deeds, we think of him as a monster, but he was also a person. And, and there are certainly people who have been treated far worse in their childhoods. Who haven't committed who, these who horrible crimes. Who haven't been these kind of people. But, I'm sorry, but Dahmer, to me, is a sympathetic character. I realized that, you know, his the relatives of his victims don't look at him that way. No, and understandably. And if he had killed somebody I know, you or likely wouldn't to, either. I would right, right there with you. Chances are I wouldn't have watched any of this stuff. Oh no, it'd be way too triggering, I'm sure. But as an outsider looking in, I just you know even even this the the Netflix thing. Uh, there's also a movie that came out on Netflix some time ago uh, uh, starring Evan Peters from the American Horror Story franchise um, as Dahmer. Uh, I haven't watched that one yet. And I just, I just feel like he was doomed from the start. Didn't have a fighting chance, did he? Did not have, there was no opportunity for him to get the love he needed and the help he mm. needed. And this, uh, left alone with his own fantasies, they spiraled out of control because of his, his mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, and he also was an alcoholic from high school. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the alcohol probably had a fair amount, had done its a fair amount of damage to his brain. Yeah. Uh, since he started drinking that young. Uh, but there, he just, he just had no chance. And he had parents who were unprepared or just plain ignorant about his problem. Uh, yeah. And it's very easy for me to say because, A, I don't have any children <laughs> who turned into serial killers um, or any children, period. No but, human ones. We've raised a couple of fabulous dogs. Yes, we have. But, you know, I, I, just, I just can't help just with the way, at least the way he's been presented both in that movie uh, from his friend's perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the tapes, which granted, edited documentaries well, sure, have a story, even if they're based on reality. Um, 
he just seems like a, a guy who was damned from the start and and with the right interventions might have been able to you know be a productive member of society what strikes me in these tapes because um we hear from a, a detective named wendy patricus um and she she um recorded they said in excess of like 30 hours of um she was on his legal team, not a detective. Oh, sorry. She was on. She was. She was on his legal team. My mistake. Um, but she she did hours and hours, over thirty hours of taped interviews with him um, after he went to jail. And the thing that strikes me is that he he also seems confused as to why he did these things um and he also presents him he's articulate he seems intelligent um it's again this is one of those um kinds of documentaries that i really appreciate because i've learned and heard things that i haven't heard in so much of the other stuff that mm -hmm. that's been out there for decades mm -hmm. um and the thing that struck me is he was painfully lonely. Mm, yeah. I mean, his plan, his efforts in some of these killings were to create a mindless zombie that would stay with him, that wouldn't want to leave. Yeah. Now, granted, drilling holes in people's heads and pouring in, was it muriatic acid? Muriatic acid. Uh, in an effort to do that does not, you know, sound like somebody who was really planning seriously. Uh, not that there's any way to do that anyway. But it, No, it a just, lot of this stuff is just horribly ghoulish. Yes, it is. And just, he's just so desperately lonely. And being a gay man in the 80s. Yeah. As far back the as Midwest, the late 70s, yeah. Um, when that was seriously disapproved of. Yeah. Even though Milwaukee had a thriving gay community. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that was a little pocket where people could live their lives and not be judged for it. But, you know, it was just a perfect storm of of mental illness, um, abandonment, and opportunity. And it ended so tragically for his victims, uh, and ultimately for him, because he was murdered in prison. Yeah. So uh, it, it, there is a lot of very ghoulish, gory descriptions. Yeah. We also see some photographs that you know, parts are blurred like the faces, but they are either obviously dead or obviously incapacitated mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah, uh, it's it's so it's not for everybody. No, it's it's heavy material. Um, but if you are interested in true crime, if you are, if the Dahmer, 
if the Dahmer story is something that you find interesting, which obviously we do, um, it's it's worth it's definitely worth watching. Conversations with the Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes is on Netflix. Three episodes. Also, three episodes is a documentary series uh, again on Netflix about the Nepal earthquake in 2015 called Aftershock, Everest, and the Nepal earthquake. Uh, it, it covers, it, it has four or five different focuses, different groups of people it looks at. Uh, some of them are climbing Everest. Some of them live in Kathmandu, which is, you know, in Nepal. And some of them um, are in a valley um, which was devastated by the earthquake. Um, there are some Americans, there are a lot of Nepalese that uh, are being interviewed, mm -hmm. um, and there are um, some people from other countries. Uh, one of the groups that's focused on is a group of three Israeli former soldiers. They have all completed their required enlistment and decided they wanted to travel the world together because they were buddies. Yeah. Um, there are some folks in this documentary who do not come off looking good. Mm. And the Israelis are Don't. at the top of that list. Wow. Um, and I'll let you, you know, watch the documentary and see what it is that leads me to that opinion. But, yeah, they, they, they do something that in, you know, from, from the, a uh, thousand mile look is so awful hmm. um, that it it's impressive that they thought it was okay. Oh, really? Um, and uh, there's also Donner Party of Four. Donner no, Party no, of no, Four. No, no, not not that, but they essentially grave robbed oh gosh essentially not physically dug up a grave and stole stuff out of it but but, but in essence they they were looting a grave that's just not okay um and there uh and there's an um, that even after the uh earthquake and the avalanche that buried a bunch of people up on everest Ugh. uh killed dozens um, and plus so many other people down in Kathmandu um, there's a uh, an American who is part of a climbing group mm -hmm. who comes off like the worst privileged American oh jeez nice he wants to go ahead and climb even after all of this has happened oh because I paid my money to come climb, and I'm gonna get my climb in, and he I'm gonna say his I climbed thousand dollars, and I, he can't get any of that back, so he wants to climb. Um, but entitled, he, spoiled, business yeah. much? Boy, howdy! That one, that one, Classy. just ran all over me. But uh, and we wonder why other places in the world hate us. <laughs> it is three episodes each, less than an hour, I think. 40 minutes or so for each one. 
the the footage of the actual avalanche uh, up on uh, Everest is impressive and scary. Of course, everybody was walking around with GoPros, so yeah. there are numerous different views of that, um, and it's uh, it's just. It, it's just an impressive piece of documentary work. It is called Aftershock, Everest, and the Nepal Earthquake, and you can watch it on Netflix, and I personally highly recommend it. Okay, that takes care of it. It's your turn next week. Yeah. Do you know what you're going to do? No. All right. <laughs> what a surprise. I know. Uh, thank you for listening to Comedy, Tragedy, Marriage. Please give us five stars and a positive review on Apple Podcasts, give us a follow as well. That way it helps people uh, find out about the podcast. If you would be so kind as to uh, also give us a follow wherever it is that you get your podcast, that would be appreciated. If you have a suggestion for something for us to watch and to talk about on Comedy Tragedy Marriage, all you have to do is send us the information, the name of what it is you want us to watch and why you think we should watch it Send that to comedytragedymarriage at gmail.com. You can also send us that information via the voice message link in the description of this episode. That takes care of it for this week. I'm Stan the Movie Man. She's Mod the Movie Broad. Love you. Love you. And until next time. Later. Later. Yay!